0: With the of the brass and Carson Sestouli. This is Fangraph Studio, my guest on this edition of Fangraph Studio, making his weekly Monday appearance. This is a weekly Monday appearance with the managing editor of Fangraphs.com, Dave Cameron. And what follows as he does uh, each week on the program, Dave Cameron endeavors in this edition of it to analyze all baseball. Of particular note, this week, the dismissal from the Seattle Mariners of General Manager Jack Drenczyk, Jack Zurenchik Jaxi Jaxi of course was hired in a flurry of optimism from the Milwaukee Brewers along with then Brewers employee now current Fangraphs employee Tony Blengino. serves as a pretense upon which to examine not only the different versions of Jaxi during his tenure with the Seattle Mariners but also to uh, with Dave Cameron Uh, to investigate the uneasy relationship. I don't know if it's uneasy, the relationship, though, between analyst and fan. They can both be in one person, uh, but there's perhaps some sort of inverse correlation between the two. We discussed that. Uh, I also asked Cameron about some comments made by Andrew Friedman to Bill Shaken of the Los Angeles Times. Andrew Friedman, uh, on the topic of Dodger center fielder Jock Peterson, who is perhaps not entirely well acquitted, uh, by UZR, the defensive metric this year, and yet it would seem well-regarded as a defensive center fielder by the Los Angeles Dodgers. What, if anything, ought we uh, to conclude from this about uh, any sort of defensive information the Dodgers might have about what it means for defensive metrics, uh, the sort that are carried at fangraphs or other sites, etc., and etc. Uh, finally, Dave Cameron uh, Dave Cameron provides this, uh, what I would call discouraging feedback, uh, to a pitch I'd made to him and uh, Fangraph's CEO, David Appleman, Your bosses are not going to be content with that as a plan. One can expect to find all this and more in what follows. Uh, what what one can expect right now are some brief notes regarding our sponsor. A sponsor is Draft. Draft and the Draft app. Are familiar with DraftKings? Are you familiar with FanDuel? These are daily fantasy sports games. Draft is also a daily fantasy sports game and has a distinction of being one of uh, the first, if not the first, uh, to be designed truly, to be designed really, and truly for the for the for a mobile device. Here's how you play. Uh, what you do is you conduct with a friend or a stranger. You conduct snake draft. You pick five players of uh, five players each, and you see who wins. Are you confident about your ability to do such a thing? You can bet. What you can do is you can bet American currency on it. Shockingly easy. Shockingly easy, and also uh, shockingly easy to acquire. Available both. For iOS and also Android currently, and here's another feature that may or may not appeal to: you, is you can play against Carson Stouli. For example, if you follow the link in the post in which this edition of the uh, the program appears, you can play against Carson Stouli directly. I, for example, uh, tonight accepted a challenge from username Most Excellent Bro. I asked him. I uh, said, if you lose tonight, uh, are you contractually obligated to uh, change your name to More Excellent Bro? he did not respond but that also highlights another feature of draft is you can uh, you can converse in a sort of message format I'm not ashamed to admit that I've recently also played against a user uh, who goes by the name Clam Burglar Clam with a K I happen to have won that game I happen to have won that game How, what did I win what did I win I won a game of draft I won a game in draft I don't know the exact phrasing but I won it in I played this game and the app is called draft where can you get it you can get a You can get it at the App Store. You can get it at Google Play. You can also get it by clicking on the relevant link uh, at the post in which this edition of the podcast appears. That is the sponsor. I've already told you about Dave Cameron and his appearance here. So, who is it? It is Dave Cameron. What is he doing? He's appearing on Fangraphs Audio. And when does it begin? Post haste.
1: Yeah, because uh, only one of us can o- ever know how to use the mute button at a time. Yeah, that's right. How Apparently, are you doing? it's my turn.
0: Dave Cameron, how are you doing? I'm good. How are you? Good. Well, you seem uh, hesitant.
1: Well, you know, I, um, I, yeah, no, I think I'm good. Listen, you just uh,
0: published a post literally seconds ago.
1: No, no, like a couple minutes ago. A couple now. minutes ago. Yeah.
0: Um, I guess every post is
1: technically. Seconds it's a number ago, depending it's, on how many seconds you go back.
0: What's your What is your threshold? What's your threshold? I mean, if it's just if it's been above a minute, will you start using minutes?
1: Yeah, I think so. Sixty seconds seems like a good threshold. I feel like, especially since I'm a father now, I've become aware of this and like how you describe your kid's age. Like yesterday was my son's eight month, not birthday, but whatever, eight month day. uh But at some point, like. When he turns a year, I'm not gonna be like, "Oh yeah, my son's 14 months." I'll just be like, "Hey, he's a year old." People do that. People, People say, "I like someone say, oh, my kid's like 26 months.' I'm like, no, he's two. He's two. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, I think after above
0: two, then you're getting. But I don't know. 18 months. I've heard eight. I feel like I've heard 18 months. You think that's a year and a half? That's just a year and a half for you.
1: Yeah. I mean, maybe, maybe it'll be different. Maybe in a year, when I'm describing my kid, I'll tell someone he's 20 months old. But I, you know, to me, it seems like once you're, uh, over the, the fraction of the, the whole, like, so you get over 60 seconds, here at a minute. At that point, you're just like, yeah, it's been a minute or two, you know, like, it's been a year or two. Like.
0: How are, how are things, I, I have not uh, had the pleasure of buying baby supplies yet, but I feel like maybe there's like a, like with diapers, if you're finding the sizes or whatever it says like you know from twelve to eighteen months or something like that.
1: yeah, I think uh, uh, they do they actually kind of go by uh, development instead of age range like so like the boxes of diapers we buy that we buy from Costco are like, can he sit up by himself? can he crawl? So they have like uh, kind of development stages where uh, our kid is only eight months old, but he's like basically you know forty feet high. he's like a giant child. Uh so he's already in size four diapers when I think um most kids his age would be uh not because they're, just, they're you get a big kids. child, huh? I uh, my brother's six five, my wife's sister is six one, uh I have a six foot four female cousin. I mean, you know, we've got we got tall tall genes. That's tall. What percentile is that for women? Si six foot four? Uh high. Did, I mean does she does she play basketball? She was an all-American uh, yeah. center at Santa Clara and played professionally in Europe.
0: Oh, yeah. Well, so there you go. I would have to think, isn't there something, you know, if you meet someone who's seven feet tall, I, uh, you say, uh, do you play basketball? But I do. Th- I think that it's some absurd percentage of people seven feet tall uh, or, or taller do actually play basketball professionally, don't they?
1: Yeah. I mean, I think the incentives are aligned in order to do so, right? If you're seven feet tall – I mean, your job options, uh unless you're, you know, maybe you're really good at coding or something. But, like, mm-hmm. you're you're probably going to get pigeonholed into, like, being a stock boy or things that involve using your scarce resource, which, you know, you're a foot taller than the rest of the, the human beings on Earth. Mm-hmm. Uh, or you can say, hey, there's one particular profession that pays really well for the scarce resource if I can develop these other skills that are, uh you know, some of them are probably more difficult to develop than others, but some of them are just hard work and uh, a lot of practice. So if you say, I've already got the most important skill in order to make millions of dollars, uh maybe I'll just go work really hard so that I don't have to just, like, put Cheerios on the top shelf.
0: Yeah, well, that, that is true. It, it, the, the, what is actually demanded of you as a, as a seven-foot-tall basketball player? It's not... It's there's the, the 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 threshold is lower in terms of actual basketball skills. You
1: don't have to do a lot. Yeah. You just have to basically be able to run yeah. and not foul. Right. And you need to be decently coordinated, obviously. Right. Well I think that has to do with not fouling, right? I guess that's part yeah, part of it.
0: Well, you need to be able to grab the ball. I had a I had a uh, the basketball team I coached this past year. I had a kid I had a kid who was it was the tallest kid in the team, but I'm not sure that he had ever played any sort of sport that involved passing, and or, you know, or right, more specifically, catching, it was really the way he caught, it, he would just clamp his hands together like a Ken doll, kind of, um, or a Barbie doll. I don't want to, I don't <laughs> need to be cisnormative here. It's uh, and but So if he did not shut his hands together, if he didn't clasp them together at the exact right moment, he did not catch anything.
1: Uh, was, uh, uh, so I didn't realize Miguel Olivo was on here your uh,
0: He was uh this kid uh was
1: probably better at physics than Miguel Olivo though, so he had that going for him.
0: Uh there's probably a
1: lot of people better at physics than Miguel Olivo, yeah, I think. Yeah. That's probably a very low bar.
0: You'd need an intuitive sense of physics if, to be a catcher, I would think, right?
1: Like yeah, some sort I think of, You have you know. to understand at least like uh flight path of a baseball.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, the, the post that you, that you did just publish, it appears that, though, there might be some feelings inside of it. Is that a possible? Is that a possibility? Uh, to the
1: extent that I have any.
0: <laughs> yeah, right. All of the feelings you do possess, yeah. uh, they, they've been reflected in that post, right?
1: Uh, yeah, that's probably true.
0: Okay. Well, let's get to the, I w- I'll ask you about it in a moment. Um, I just want to, it, it, it involves to some degree, I'm sure, uh, the dismissal. Oh, wait. We've, we've done some work recently with, um, with uh euphemisms for getting fired, yeah, um in one of them we talked with uh, Dombrowski, and some of them they do reflect the reality of the situation, but with dombrowski it was he was released from his contract released from his contract with yeah. regard to let's see sherrington was two after him, what was he? Sherrington, I think, uh opted not to re- re- remain with the organization. Okay, all right. So he yeah. so he that was a there was a bit more volition there. Yeah. Uh Melvin was in between those two. Melvin
1: transitioned to an advisory role. Transitioned to an advisory role.
0: Right. Uh and are there any uh, euphemisms at play in the departure of Jack Serenic from the Seattle Mariners?
1: The Mariners announced that they relieved Jack Serenzik of his duties. That okay. was the phrase they used.
0: Do you think that the higher the Profile, uh, the position, uh, the the deeper the euphemism being used uh, to describe how you're leaving uh, a position?
1: That's probably true. I think if you're like a, you know, a stock boy or something, uh, you know, uh, an hourly, uh, an hourly employee, yeah. they're probably be like, yeah, you got canned. Yeah. <laughs> we're dumping you. Yeah. Uh, but then once you get up on like the, the scale of like, you could potentially be someone's boss again in the future, or like the person firing you could find themselves as your subordinate at some point, they like want to like couch it and be like, yeah, we just relieved him. He was tired. And so we wanted to give him a break. Yeah, I think I
0: took a. Uh, well, I didn't. I'm not going to say I took a class. I was enrolled for a class at uh, Columbia, and I maybe went to a couple of class meetings uh, in the field of human communications. I believe it was taught by a professor named Richard Krauss. Or I could be very. I could be wrong on all accounts. However, the class that I happened to attend, he uh, was looking at situations where um, one, where one actor, actor one, was asking a second actor. Uh, a question and the more sensitive the question the the more deeply couched it was like within the the syntax of the sentence you know so it's like uh oh if, you know pass me the doritos right that's not there's not really a lot at stake but if you're asking for a ten thousand dollar loan uh the way in which you ask what you know something like, i was wondering if maybe it might be possible that you could right. potentially see fit to there's a, there's just a lot more sort of verbal... Uh, uh, I guess what you might call hemming and hawing. I don't know if it's more hemming or hawing, but...
1: Um. Yeah, I mean, I think we see this in, like, marriage proposals, right? Like, we come with this, like, really shiny gift and we, like, put ourselves in a prostate position and we're like, hey, would you like to yeah. spend the rest of your life with me? I mean, yeah. it's certainly not like, hey, want to get hitched. I guess for some people, that's probably how they did it. You and maybe, more maybe more their marriages yeah. are uh, lower maintenance. Maybe yeah, also when goes. you... Uh,
0: when you when you ask a woman to marry you have to lather yourself in uh in butter head to toe did you you did I, that i assume I did too, right? i didn't do that i
1: live in the south so we use lard
0: lard yeah you have to yeah it's true you have to lather yourself head to yeah. toe in butter i thought yeah. that was weird but uh you know conventions uh you have to recognize them sometimes even if they seem they seem silly yeah
1: that is a, a
0: particularly silly one mm mm-hmm. mhm hmm uh okay so let so let me talk about let me ask you about uh we'll call him jackie for the, so that we can ignore his last <laughs> name for the moment uh what um oh yeah he's been fired or he's you know he's he's not, he's no longer in his position as are these others we've we mentioned uh, i think that this is is this on sort of the the heavy side in terms of dismissals for general managers uh yeah yeah okay yeah. but my question is this. How common is it to see a general manager um, leave his position with one team and at some later point be, um, assume a, general, a GM position with another team, and to have success if he has not had success previously? This happens a lot with managers, right? Like I would think Terry Francona, for instance, he inherited some pretty miserable Phillies teams, uh, and then when he went to the Boston Red Sox, they, you know, they were very good for his turn to that. They, they, and this is this is something that's happened many, you know, many times. Uh, is it is it always is it, is that the case with general managers? Or if if a guy is essentially fired from his um, general managerial post, is he what? How many of
1: them are rehired uh, by another team in the future? Well, I think if we look at the current crop of GMS in baseball, right, like guys who have been. Removed from their positions, so not Theo Epstein or Andrew Friedman or guys who left of their own volition to get raises in better cities or better franchises or whatever, uh, position that they preferred. Uh, you know, Dan Duquette in Boston, uh, was fired and now he's running the Orioles, uh, and has been fairly successful, so I think oh, that's... I, Ke- true. That's an example of a guy who he was out of out of baseball for ten years. Well, and years that's so. what I was
0: gonna say. He was he was gone for a long time. Yeah.
1: yeah, right. This is this was not a you know went and became a scouting director or something and like worked his way back up. I mean, he was out of the game. Uh, and the Orioles essentially had to hire him because no one else in baseball wanted to work for them because Peter Angelos has a, uh, reputation as a meddler. Uh, and Dan Duquette has succeeded in a position that a lot of other people didn't want to work in. So not only has he, has he won, but he's won with what is, was appeared to be a challenging situation. Um I mean besides that, I, like the other rehired GMs would be like Walt Jockety, I guess. Uh, he lost a kind of power struggle with ownership uh over kind of the decision to go more analytical because that's not really Jockney's style. Uh So Jockney went to the Reds and built some good teams. Um, certainly not one this year, but, but in the past has built some good teams. Um, yeah, I mean, that's maybe all I can think of. It, yeah, it doesn't seem to
0: be. With regard to Dequette, was wasn't the perception the first time around for him with Boston? Uh, did he had difficulties, but didn't it uh, seem to concern more often his uh, his bedside manner, as it were, than it did to his actual abilities to acquire acquire players? Yeah,
1: I mean, it's all right. I think like he was maybe uh, not that concerned with what the media thought of him, which in Boston is tricky because the media is loud there, mm-hmm. and there are a lot of them. Uh, and, you know, I think Ducat was kind of at the forefront of using analytics and numbers, and he had, you know, a stat guy who was also out there. I mean, if you've read about some of the uh, uh, the stories of Duquette's stat guy from the mid-90s and some of the things he's doing now, this is a, quite the character. Uh, Mike Gimbel is his name, I believe. Um, so, yeah, I think uh, Duquette's downfall was maybe a little bit like Paul DiPodesta when he ran the Dodgers, right, as, mm-hmm. like, a smart guy, uh, generally successful, may, may you know, had winning teams. But disliked by enough people with enough pull uh, in public and maybe even within the organization to uh, get the team to decide to go another direction.
0: Right. So if we talk about if we think about it within this context, um, we would assume it, it seems possible, right? Uh, maybe with the exception of Ben Charrington, who, who it seems there was some volition there that we will not be seeing. Well, Dombrowski has been hired already. Um, yeah. Essentially to replace Sherrington, but maybe the, the, the chances of seeing, uh, Doug Melvin or Jack Sorensik in a, in a, uh, as a general manager again, they seem, the chances seem low, would you say?
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I, so I, I think Dabrowski might prove to be one of these, like, successful GMs after getting fired because he's going into a really good situation. <laughs> like, uh, the Red Sox are leaving him with a team that isn't as bad as their record, um, you know, I, probably the best farm system in baseball, a young core at the big league level. Like, uh I can't imagine that there's a, a GM set up better for uh kind of uh hero status that Dembrowski, than Dombrowski, because he's going to come in, he's going to make a couple of trades, a couple of underperformers are going to improve, and this team's probably going to be okay to maybe even decent next year, and then, a you know, potentially a strong contender starting in, like, 2017. And then it's going to be like, man, look what Dave Dombrowski did with the Red Sox when you know, uh, this was probably going to happen anyway.
0: Right, yeah. Well, that's the, um, wasn't that the Phil, we've talked about this, the Phil Jackson School of right. of Coaching. where yeah, You t- take
1: over t- good teams with talent. Yeah,
0: that's yeah. That's always a smart way to do it. Yeah. Okay, uh, so Jack Z, though, is the most recent one. Uh, obviously, uh, when talking about, um, I suppose any m- member of the Mariners front office with Dave Cameron, uh, it's possible to ignore the fact that you started uh, your writing career, um, your analysis career, as one that was uh, deeply invested in the Mariners, right?
1: Yeah. Right. I mean, I think that's, I, I'm still heavily associated with the Mariners uh, because that's where I kind of got my break.
0: Right. And uh, so I suppose uh, in some ways this is, uh, there's always going to be more going on. Uh, uh, when we talk to you, it's going to be more going on than talking about, you know, like the Tiger situation, for example. But uh, briefly looking at the Jack Zemetric and Jeff Sullivan um, sort of uh, examined this in some uh, in some detail earlier today for the for the electronic pages. Uh, Zemetric well, he was sort of – he seemed to have been hired under one pretense, but then following a difficult 2010 season, uh, pulled an about-face. Is, is that is that roughly the narrative?
1: Yeah, I mean, that's right. So I think the the concept is that Jack was, uh, you know, a scout with the brewers uh, who essentially got hired for scouting chops, but uh, along the way, he brought with him Tony Legito, who now writes for us, uh, and Tony helped him kind of round out his skill set, uh, provided a lot of uh, analytical, complimentary uh, critiques or, or perspective, um, and so... Uh, the Mariners thought they were kind of getting a hybrid of, you know, a, a top-tier scout who drafted really well and developed with, from within the farm system and uh, also a guy who was open and receptive to new ideas and kind of pushing the organization towards the money ball route of things. Um, but then as things didn't necessarily go so well with the uh, speed and defense and, and just enough hitting plan, uh, you know, maybe uh, the analytical side of things got diminished.
0: Right, and that that and that 2010 team was the problem, right? I mean, that was a that was not a good team. Right?
1: Yeah, there Apparently. were a lot of things. There were a lot of things that went wrong. I mean, they lost 100 games. Sean Figgins was a disaster. Uh, they gave him 36 million dollars as a free agent, and he was just you know terrible. Uh Milton Bradley didn't hit. I mean, they, you know, basically every bet they made that off season went the wrong way. Not too dissimilar from the Red Sox this year, where you know they made a lot of uh potentially you know. uh Decent decisions that you can see the logic for and say, you know, uh, this player has a decent track record and then he just became a total disaster. I mean, even if you didn't like Haley Ramirez and Pablo Sandoval, you probably thought, you know, they were uh, average or above average players, not the worst two players in baseball. Uh, and I think, you know, the, the 2010 Mariners, uh, hit, <laughs> hit, hit the worst case scenario in almost every bet they made.
0: Right. And that can be, uh, if you, if, if, if your job is reliant on, uh, you know, the, perf- Performance like that, uh, I assume uh, you might have a you might have a reactionary um, you might cause a sort of reactionary movements.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think one of the tricky things about working in baseball is it is very difficult to just sit around and wait for regression to the mean, right? Like that might actually be the proper response in some instances is just to be like, look, this was an unlikely outcome that won't happen again, and if we just stay the course and remain patient, things will eventually go our way over the long term. But that's not uh what people are paid to do. <laughs> and, right if your job is uh you know to be a decision maker and your decision is like, meh, everything's fine, we're just gonna sit here and and uh you know be proven right in a year, um, you know, your bosses are not gonna be content with that as a plan in general. So uh you know, I think decision makers and executives, uh need to at least have the appearance of doing things even if they're not necessarily making huge structural changes they need to look like they're actually uh evaluating and making making improvements and um so you know i think uh, a disaster season like the 2010 Mariners or the tw- 2015 Red Sox uh is going to lead uh to changes more often than not
0: right and so what what's, the, what's the, what am i going to find in your piece uh, when i do read it
1: <laughs> so uh the piece is essentially about um, kind of my uh relationship with being a Mariner fan as I became a full-time professional baseball writer um and kind of dealing with the push and pull of uh the rationality of fandom. so I think like this is one thing that's pretty common to talk about is like um you know f- being a fan is irrational because we're rooting for people we don't know uh to do well at their job so that we can be happy right like that's a silly thing of like giving our happiness to someone else. Uh, and let, letting them decide whether we're gonna, you know, uh, enjoy our day based on their own performance. Like that's, that seems silly.
0: Right, with the but, added variable too is that, uh, somewhere someone is, is profiting off of this irrational feeling.
1: Yes, right, so we're giving money to people to watch them perform with our happiness and in a lot of cases like their performance doesn't even determine the outcome right like maybe a maybe an umpire who or the referee who are not there to see is mm-hmm. going to determine whether our team wins or loses and so then like our the guys we were rooting for did really well and got screwed by a bad call and now we're extra in a bad mood and it's like <laughs> uh you know that's that's really irrational except for the fact that i think when we look at it and say in terms of Community, this is really the point of why we're sports fans, is to find people who have aligned incentives, uh, that we can share life with and share this one common trait and get to know and, and have something in common with and that we develop friendships this way and, and so I think from that perspective of like community building, sports fan, being a sports fan is entirely rational. But once you become a baseball writer, that calculus changes a little bit and I think I found, uh, and maybe it's not like this for every other baseball writer, but for me, the calculation Uh, remaining a fan of one single team was actually a bit of a negative uh, as a writer when it was not when it's it's clearly, at least to me a positive if you're not working in baseball, but once you are working kind of in the game or around the game having an allegiance to a specific franchise becomes uh, maybe a a drag on your happiness
0: Right, because um, well I suppose every moment that you're dedicating to You know, either to observing that team's games or, you know, uh, you know, considering them apart from the game, that's a, that's a minute when you're not doing that for the other 29 teams.
1: Yeah, I I mean, that's part of it. I think that there's also maybe, um, not necessarily the perception, but like the feeling of belonging, right? So, like, one of the things I talked about in the piece that you haven't read,
0: uh, (laughs) is
1: feeling a little bit like I disconnected from the, um, same interests of the, the, the kind of Mariner fan community where they were, you know, just unabashedly rooting for the best case scenario outcome in every case. But once you start having like, you're paid to have an opinion, mm-hmm. then that becomes the thing that you're, you're selfishly rooting for, right? Like if I say that Nelson Cruz is not a good signing, I don't want Nelson Cruz to hit 45 home runs. <laughs> like, uh, it makes me look bad. And we can say like that's a silly incentive, but I, I don't know how to, Uh, I don't know any writer who doesn't root for their own opinions to come true. I think think this is just a natural thing. So when the best-case scenario for the franchise is at odds with the best-case scenario for your own prognostication or your own credibility, uh, you have a little bit of a conflict there. And I think, at least in my case, it seems that uh, by self-interested – uh, state uh, has uh, taken taken hold over community state.
0: Right. Yeah. State, not unlike this. Uh, w- last year, whenever Callie and I were in Paris, uh, and I would uh, I would bet sometimes um, on uh, on football matches there. Uh, you know, using some. I don't know how sophisticated the methodology was I was using to determine on which team to bet. But I do know that my favorite teams my favorite teams were always the ones that were winning me money. Um, yeah, right. That, <laughs> that, right. Absolutely, had, your it, favorite it, team. It's the
1: most basic state. Like this could be applied to gambling. Like I guarantee <laughs> you, professional gamblers have long ago renounced their team fanship, or at least they figured out how to compartmentalize it and not not bet on uh, games that would you know conflict with that. But you know, if once this really affects your livelihood, uh, your rational state is going to be like, no, I choose money over over this particular group of players playing well. Right. Well, yeah, the satisfaction
0: the satisfaction you get from the team you know for which you cheer winning a game versus the team that can you know uh double your money just merely by winning uh well i don't know for me uh i like that because then i can use that money not only was i cheering for that team to win but now i can use that money to buy you know like a delicious meal and i love meals too so it seems i'm getting two two two
1: joys for the price of one yeah, I think, uh, the, you know, the reality is, like, uh, now that this is my livelihood and how I make my money, or how I make, you know, a salary, uh, I would like to remain employed. <laughs> and so if it comes down to like, oh man, if all my opinions are wrong and I get fired, but the Mariners win, I will be less happy, uh, than if, I, if the Mariners are terrible, but I remain employed and can still, you know, buy diapers for my kid.
0: Right, size four currently. If anyone would like to make a, a donation, maybe a, I don't know if you have. Do you have a wish list with Amazon? We Amazon?
1: don't. We don't.
0: Okay. Yeah, I
1: think uh, you know, uh, Costco is the way to go.
0: Okay. The let's talk. Let's talk about another GM, uh, the Dodgers. You mentioned Dodgers GM Andrew Friedman. He did switch teams, but uh, it was his choice entirely. Yeah. Um, he recently said he said in a piece. Let's say it was written by Bill Shaken. Do you want to say that? And then LA Times. I don't want to say it because I don't know what piece you're talking about, I but you can say a, it
1: and I will not challenge you.
0: A piece written, uh, it's a question, do some stats suggest Dodgers outfielder Jock Peterson is below average? Well, that's a question. The answer is, well, the answer is kind of irrelevant, right? Um, uh, the answer as it pertains to UZR is yes. Uh, at this point, uh, roughly 500 plate appearances into his rookie season, Jock Peterson is regarded as slightly below average. By UZR, negative four runs roughly. Um, uh, I think uh, it must have been Bill Shaken who asked Andrew Friedman about this. I think it's Shaken. Let's just say it's Shaken. No, I
1: think I saw him talking about this on Twitter.
0: Right. Uh, He says, uh, Andrew Friedman says, there are real limitations to the defensive metrics in the public sphere through watching them on a daily basis and through our information. We're very confident Jock is an above average defender. Um, Now, this is this was uh, this is a softball question, which is sort of a baseball metaphor, but it's a slow pitch softball question. Um, is it possible that someone could simultaneously be an above average defender and also have um, have accrued a negative number of runs as a fielder according to UZR?
1: yeah absolutely and i think this happens pretty regularly not just with fielding but like uh you know basically all kinds of performances right like steven strasberg is an above average major league pitcher having a below average season uh and i don't think anybody looks at it and be like ah pitching metrics are stupid because steven Strasburgs are bad this year because steven strasberg just isn't pitching that well uh even though he's you know one of the better pitchers in baseball on a talent level so i think um uh, you know without sitting down with Friedman and, and asking him to parse his sentence particularly, uh, we can say that you can make a comment about Peterson's overall talent level without it uh, nullifying the fact that he could be having a below-average performance. Uh, now, that doesn't necessarily mean that uh, Peterson's UZR is correct. Like, maybe the Dodgers have his performances rating above average, and uh, they just disagree with the seasonal um, uh, kind of... Um, I'm not sure what word I'm looking for, but kind of this, the the idea that he's been a below-average performer this year, regardless of his talent level. Right. Um, so, you know, uh, does Friedman's critique have merit? Sure. Defensive metrics are imperfect. I think, like, everybody at Fangraphs would agree with that assessment. Uh, does the comment that Peterson could be an above average center fielder mean that he couldn't have performed below average over 400 games or 100 games or 200 games, whatever. Uh, that, no. I mean, you, you can perform differently than your talent level. A, a, a curious development in his, at least in his stat line. In
0: 2012, uh, he stole, um, Jock Peterson stole uh, roughly 30 bases, uh, nearly 30 bases. In 2013, he stole 31 bases. Last year, he stole 30 bases um, with varying degrees of, of success rate, right?
1: Mm-hmm. Um,
0: but roughly average, at least in a couple of them. This year, he's he's three for nine on stolen base attempts. Yeah, that's, that's the, not good. Yeah, it's not good. It's stark. I guess it's uh, – I guess what? Do, do, no, I, I don't remember the age curves for how for speed. I don't know. Is it like – I know pitcher velocity like at a certain age, maybe 24, 25 it just goes down essentially like a third of mile per hour every year. What it, do you, do you, offhand,
1: do you recall the, the age curve for speed? Well, I don't think we have like, we don't have like home to first time, like we have velocity for fastball, but I think we know that speed peaks very early. Right. Uh, stolen base rates are almost always their highest, uh, at least attempt wise, uh, you know, at the, the earliest of your career. You might get better at it and like pick your spots a little bit better as you get older. But you know the guys who steal 100 bases are almost always in their 20s. Right. And so, but is that
0: that seems that seems very stark. Is is there anything if you were if you were asked to draw
1: conclusions from that from that sort of development, what would they be? Well, I mean, I think you know from a numerical perspective, there isn't a lot of evidence that Jock Peterson is fast. Like maybe uh, Statcast data that we don't have access to because MLB is keeping it for themselves this year, uh, and it has some issues. Uh, which might be why they're keeping it for themselves, uh, would confirm that Jock Peterson is fast. But just looking at his numbers, I think, like, you know, on Fanky, we have what we call a speed score, which basically looks at, like, your stolen base numbers and also your number of doubles and triples. and um, does a, It's a pretty good proxy. I mean, it's not perfect, certainly, but the guys who have high speed scores generally tend to be fast, and the guys who have low speed scores tend tend to be slow. Jock Peterson has a speed score of 2.6, which is, like, I think that's about the same as, like, Prince Fielder's career number. Oh, wow, wow. Um, this is like this is not the statistical profile of a guy who is a center fielder, and you know mm-hmm. perhaps uh, every metric that's a proxy for speed is wrong, and Jock Peterson is uh, an above average center fielder, but I don't I don't know besides you know the Dodgers self interested claim that he is uh, I don't know that we have a lot of evidence for that.
0: Yeah, that's that's crazy because uh, it's also been higher before too. That speed score it's, it's routinely been in the sixes. In the minor leagues?
1: Yeah. Yeah, I mean, right. So I think, like, it's certainly possible that a healthy Jock Peterson is a better defender than we've seen this year. Uh, and this year, maybe he's just not entirely healthy. Right. Okay, yeah. Hmm.
0: Interesting uh, development. And yet, uh, he's he's done a pretty good job of
1: hitting the home runs. Yeah, I mean, right. So, like, the, the aspect of that he's doing well at, drawing walks and hitting home runs, have nothing to do with being able to play center field. Like, mm-hmm. these are totally different skills. Yeah,
0: okay. Um. All right uh well that that's all. that was just a quick aside with regard to that um you're actually getting close to having fulfilled uh, your obligation here uh let 's do two quick things. You wrote about david Peralta uh David Peralta. I did not even realize until you posted this uh this piece about him how well he was playing this year. Well is the answer
1: maybe uh that 's why I called him the
0: most underrated yeah that's right and um he's he's playing quite well um. He, he of course he was a pitcher well, he was a pitcher what, at one point in the cardinals organization right 2008 yeah right and now uh, then he had to go to an independent league to pitch to uh, hit. to hit right to hit in order to be uh, to be picked up by a team of course then um, it's it's not it's pretty rare even that you know if if a player is signed out of an indie league it's pretty rare that he necessarily uh, we'll make the majors or make it any sort of real capacity here's this is this is it, this is a simple question maybe, but I don't know if it has an interesting answer. Uh, why do you think um why do you think it's pretty rare, or what are the contributing factors to rare that players are signed out of an indie league and then become above average major leaguers?
1: because players with enough talent to uh, become good major leaguers generally don't fall through the net right so like ma- the major league teams uh, have enough. Resources and enough scouts and enough places to put people just on, like, lottery tickets uh, with whatever, six or seven minor league affiliates per team and 30 teams. I mean, you have a lot of minor league spots to fill. But if you have any kind of talent uh, and a chance to turn into a major league player, they're going to give you a chance. Like, you know, the cost for them, you know. A lot of times these late round picks will sign for like $1,000, right? So like it's basically no cost to them to just take someone who can throw, you know, 84, but they, well, he's 6'2", and maybe eventually he'll throw 92 and turn into something. They can afford to take flyers on all of these guys where, uh, you know, the guys who go to indie leagues are basically the ones who've been rejected from this already very wide net that MLB is casting.
0: Right. And it is, it is wide. I guess it's, what the the length of the draft was amended recently in yeah, the last it used couple to be years. Fifty rounds, right? Yeah, yeah, right. And now it's what, 40?
1: forty? Forty. Yeah, they knocked yeah. off ten rounds. <laughs> yeah,
0: but that's still that's still huge. And then what? I mean, even at, even when you get to like, even when you get when you're outside of round ten, that's that's like a, or around five maybe even. Unless you know, some, in some cases you see um, uh, you know players signed for an overslot bonus or whatever, but generally those guys who are receiving a hundred thousand dollars or less their chances of becoming major leaguers are already pretty low.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think that's the thing. Is like, you know, teams are uh competing against each other for a, a pool of talent, and they have enough money to say, realistically, anyone who has a reasonable chance of becoming a major leaguer, we can afford to throw real money at them. And so even those players just don't have to go to the indie leagues. They can get twenty-five or $50,000 uh, or whatever as a signing bonus and go play minor league ball for four or five years. And if they turn out, great.
0: You know, it's interesting. You noted in, in, your, in your piece that he consulted with Rick Ankiel, who, of course, very famously uh, stopped pitching uh, to, be, to become a position player. Um, you know, he's actually outperformed this season. He's outperformed Rick Ankiel's best season.
1: He's outperformed, I think, almost all the other pitcher-hitter conversions. And we've seen this with like Adam Lowen, right? And mm-hmm. like, uh, Micah Owings. And there have been a few guys who have, uh, been pitchers and then been hitters. Uh, and I don't think any of them have really done as well as David Peralta. This is kind of like unprecedented that this guy would like sign as a pitcher, wash out, Go to the indie leagues, become a hitter, and turn into like one of the better hitters in, in baseball. Yeah,
0: yeah. Well, yeah. Uh, good story, and it'd be interesting to see how he develops because I think, as you know, too, right? Uh, part of his uh, his batting line is uh, is founded on extra base hits that are not home runs. Yeah, um, he gets a lot of that. triples. Right. Uh, he
1: has 17 career triples in whatever. 750 plate appearances, so you know a little bit more than a full season. So that's whatever an average of like 15 per full year or something. Mm-hmm. Uh, not the fastest guy in the world. He has 11 stolen bases and 17 attempts, mm-hmm. like not a speed demon. He's a pretty big guy. Uh, he w- lost weight to get in shape, but you know still a bigger guy. You don't look at him and be like, yeah, this guy's gonna be a triples machine.
0: Right. Okay. Uh, and then last thing I w- about which I wanted to ask you is the is the waiver deadline? What is it? The the, wa- the the trade deadline. This is the real trade deadline. <laughs> say, say it. Say it how it, a person should say it. It has the word waiver
1: in it, I bet. Yeah, this would be the waiver trade deadline. Just the, so waiver, the July thirty-first is the non-waiver. trade Non-waiver
0: trade. Waiver this is the waiver trade deadline. You, you right. need to have placed your the player. The
1: player needs to have passed through revocable waivers. Correct. Okay. Or be claimed on revocable waivers by the team he's ah, right. traded to.
0: Right. Okay. Um, and uh, our, will we see? Is well, it what the deadline is? What this afternoon, probably? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Four p.m. or something?
1: Probably. yeah.
0: Sure. Yeah. yeah. Uh, we have seen uh, giant deals. This is, of course, the the giant Red Sox Dodgers deal from however many years ago occurred during this period. Uh, do you expect any any big trades to occur before whatever this afternoon?
1: No, I would say uh, probably the biggest deals we are going to see are like well, you know a few days ago the Mets acquired Addison Reed uh to strengthen their bullpen we might see some more moves like that where you know some middle reliever or uh you know a marginal setup guy uh goes to a contender but i, I can't imagine we're going to see any significant uh trades today
0: and uh, uh Chase Utley was traded too
1: uh Chase Utley was traded yeah like yeah, a week through, through ago For so. the
0: Dodgers yeah, yeah yeah the phillies have you know the phillies ended up with a lot of good talent uh they did. by virtue of these of their trades yeah
1: yeah good, good job Ruben Amaro. Yeah,
0: I don't know how he did yesterday. I think Alec Asher was one of the players they picked up. Maybe he was from the Royals. Does that sound right? Maybe he was from the Rangers.
1: I don't know. But I think like, Asher was in the Rangers, the whole okay. Hamels
0: trade. Right. And then uh, Jared Eikhoff, I think he's pitching tonight for yeah. the Texas Yeah. I think trade. he was also in that trade. Right? Yeah, he was also in that trade. Nick Williams. Nick Williams. Uh, well, a couple guys got injured. I think both Nomar, or Jorge Alfaro. Does that sound yeah. right? Oh
1: Yeah, Alfaro hurt his ankle.
0: He hurt his ankle. Also, maybe Nick Williams. Uh, he had a concussion or something.
1: That's that's not okay. great. You got to watch out for that. You don't want
0: to get concussed.
1: It's true. All Concussions right. are bad. Yeah. you Just breaking analysis. Brought to you by Thinkras.
0: <laughs> the uh uh, I, I'm about to do a podcast with the the young men from, um, Cespedes Family Barbecue. Are you familiar with them There's two of them. Which yeah, bo- yeah, thinking? both of them. Oh, you doing it with both of them? And apparently, one of them is in England. Yeah, right? I, I I've seen that yeah. on the Twitter. I, be, I'd be I'm pleased to, to speak with them.
1: Yeah, they're, uh, uh, enthusiastic Enthusiastic is a good word for them. Yeah, I think they are. Yeah. yeah.
0: Boisterous. Yeah. It'd be nice to catch some of that because, you know, um, uh, it's not Maybe that I'm old. Not. It's like the exact opposite of me. No, no, no. I'm saying, you know, at 35, they're looking for reasons to, uh, looking for reasons to get yourself through the day. You know, there can be few and far between.
1: Yeah. Be Maybe like, you should, uh, call them every day then. start. I might start. Yeah, just like start your day by calling the Festivus Family Barbecue Guys. Might start. Yeah. And it'd be good
0: uh, because one of them, if he's in England, he'll definitely be up when I yeah. wake up. And there you go. And then the other one, when I go to bed, he'll still be awake. So that's a, they, got they got great yeah. coverage. they got great coverage. Maybe yeah. I could call the one in England in the morning and then, you know. All right, I think we can, we can analyze that as well. All right, so you, were, yeah, you fulfilled your obligation, Dave Cameron. Thank you. Yeah. Well, thank you you for joining uh, Fangraphs Audio. You're welcome. You're welcome. Yeah, very good. That has been uh, managing editor of Fangraphs, Dave Cameron. I'm Carson Stooley. This has been Fangraphs Audio.